I want to invite you to open up a Bible, if you have one, to the book of Romans. And we're going to be in the 12th chapter of Romans. Um, and before we read that, just a couple of things to mention very briefly. One is that the crash has moved again and is now over on that side where all the other kids' work is taking place. So if you have any need to take a, um, a little one out, please do find your way across. And also, you know, each week at the moment, I just want to remind you um, that we are, we are seeking very much to revive the, uh, the community life of the church, particularly through the life groups, which have mainly been online this year. But as things are moving towards normality, now is a wonderful time to connect with a group if you uh, want to experience the church as a family and church as community. So if you're uh, relatively new to Grace or just haven't managed to find your way to a life group as yet, please do get in touch with us and we'll be sure to invite you to one. Just email the church, info at grace.london. And we'll get back to you. Now, I want to um, read verses 1 to 8 of Romans chapter 12 to you today. So if you have a Bible, please do follow along. Paul writes this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Over the coming weeks, uh, Jeremy and I are both going to be uh, teaching through this chapter of the book, the letter to the Romans, and uh, just giving you something of a short series. It's not quite clear how that will pan out as yet, because um, at some point in the coming days, we're expecting a baby to be born and then has them home, and uh, at which point Jeremy is on red alert to immediately be ready to come and preach at the short notice. So we're not quite sure how it will pan out, but our intention is to work through this chapter in the coming weeks. And the reason is this. If you know how Paul's letters work, most of them have this kind of clear structure. They begin by laying out Christian belief and doctrine and uh, what we would call orthodoxy, right belief. And then at some point in many of his letters, there is something of a, a turning point where he then begins to unfold the implications of right belief in terms of orthopraxy, right practice, how to live out the Christian faith. And so there is always the partnering and the mixing of these two things, orthodoxy, the things that we believe and count as precious and true, and then the right practice, the orthopraxy, the way of living out the faith. And of course, in the, in, in the last year, um, it would be fair to say that most of what we have, most of our church life has very much been about our belief. And we've been teaching and working through Mark's gospel for a significant part of the year and just teaching the gospel and seeking to reinforce and build the foundations of our, of our faith. But 
what has been inhibited in this year is our practice, our ability to work it out in the way the scriptures invite us to work it out. And primarily, um, most of that obedience is reflected in the life of the congregation, the life of the church, the life of the church as a community or as a family or as the people of God. And so the danger is that we somehow drift into the way of thinking of, of the Christian faith, which is more of something that you just have to get your mind straight. And we forget the, the actions that Christ calls for. There's a danger that we kind of drift into a forgetfulness or we lose confidence in terms of what it is that we're meant to do and to practice and to live out as God's people. Or that potentially we kind of lose muscle tone, if you like. You know, if you were to go into a major surgery to correct some structural part of your anatomy, be it like spinal surgery, very quickly after the surgery, doctors, as soon as possible, doctors and physiotherapists will want to get you moving again in order to bring about um, a recovery of lost ability so that you are, you, are, you are able to function correctly again. And there's something like that, I think, going on right now. And so I'm coming into this this chapter, Romans chapter 12, because this is the turning point in the letter to the Romans. Romans 1 to 11 is all, uh, is the, the panoramic view of the gospel. And maybe God willing, one day we'll teach through the letters of the Romans, but um, that, that is not my immediate plan. And um, at some point, this life-changing, world-changing letter is worth a closer look. But I wanted to really focus on this right practice. And I think that right now is as we are in this particular moment, it's May 2021, this is an important moment and an opportune and exciting moment. But just as we've seen some of the church life inhibited over this past year and many of the gifts within the church life set aside and, and latent and not used, right now there's an opportunity to reset things, at least in the coming weeks. And it's felt to me a little bit like back in the 90s when we first had a PC, these things would break quite frequently and uh, one of the remedies you'd have to figure out how it's, what was broken was by booting it into safe mode, which is where you don't open up the Windows operating system. It's just the barest kernel of, of uh, what the computer could operate. And you have a blue or a gray screen and just some basic command lines that you could enter. And it feels to me like church has been a bit like that this last year. Everything has been in safe mode. We've been in shutdown. And right now, we're, we're kind of seeking to, to engage in a kind of reboot. And this is really an exciting moment. It means that we're going to have a recovery of joy, of fellowship, of worship, um, in, in the fullest expression, and of service, which is our focus today. So let me just help you understand what this means for you individually before we get into what Paul's saying here. Think about what the Christian life is and how it works out in the various stages. And more or less, it works like this. You begin with... The first step is always an understanding of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel being the message that God has made it possible for you to know him through the atoning blood of his son and our savior Jesus. That all he requires of you is belief. That you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and his atoning blood cleanses you from all sin. You bring your sin and you receive his righteousness. We bring our emptiness and we receive his filling by the power of the Spirit. It is everything about the Christian life as it is in its initiative is a state of reception and dependence. We come with nothing but our bankruptcy and God blesses us. And this very speedily moves on to a kind of second moment in the Christian life. And maybe you can't distinguish these two events, but it unfolds in this way. 
that you then begin to respond to the God who saved you with a response of love and adoration and affection. And this is how, as the chapter tips into Romans 12, the whole of Romans 1 to 11 has been an exposition of the gospel. And then Romans 12 begins by saying, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And when a person, when the light shines on your heart and you, you discover the grace of God in his love for you, what it means to be saved, this can, in a sense, feel like the most natural thing in the world. An adoration of Christ, a love for him, follows from a knowledge of what he's done for you. And you begin to want to worship. I remember when I was a teenager, I used to um, listen to a South African Christian band called Tree 63. And uh, yeah, we're talking some time ago, right? And uh, these guys used to sing a song that in the verse, it used to say, look what you've done for me. Your blood has set me free. Jesus, my Lord, look what you've done for me. So a reflection on the gospel. But it moved into a chorus where the response was, what can I do for you, my Lord? I want you to know my heart is yours. It's not a question of what you can do for me, but what can I do for you, my Lord? I actually think the the song is wrong. It's always a question of what he can do for you. But the sentiment's right, isn't it? You're saved. Then a love begins to grow in your heart and you say, what can I do for you? I remember listening to that song with a burning heart. Jesus, I know you've rescued me. Now I want to live for you. But then that must naturally lead on to a third stage, which is that you begin to discover the ways in which God has formed and made you and the way in which he's called you uniquely and individually to serve him. There are aspects of service and of living for God which are applicable to all of us in a very generic sense. But there's also a way in which you, when you discover your place within the family of God, you discover what he's put into you and the way in which that's meant to be worked out. And you, you, you begin, in other words, to exercise your service or your ministry for the kingdom. That may be within the church. It certainly also will take place outside of the church in every context in which you are alive. Because you're never not a Christian, right? Everywhere you go, you're representing Jesus. So a Christian who stops just at that first experience of the grace of God, I'm saved, is in a sense incomplete. You have to find a way to work out the salvation. God saved you for purpose, in other words, to put it positively. The question then I want to wrestle with you today is how do you use your gift for the good of God's people and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ? How do you use your gift for the good of God's people and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ? And I think we need to start, I want to particularly focus on verses 3 onwards, but I want to start with this statement that first of all, Paul tells us you must soberly assess your gift, soberly assess yourself. It begins by telling us that by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So he's, connected, he's making connections here. These people are saved. They're now seeking to live a life of worship to God. The first thing that you must do, 
he says, is make a sober assessment of who and what you are. It's an invitation, in other words, to a kind of self-knowledge. Now, it's an interesting thing as I open up this subject that in, in a sense, this is something of a given in the modern age because I think we live in a day and an age in which the obsession with the self and with the analysis of the self has really uh, been exaggerated way beyond all proportion. So we are absolutely interested in ourselves these days, interested in analyzing our own minds and psychology and the way we're wired and structured and our gifts. And of course, the obvious uh, example of this is all the plethoration of various ways of assessing yourself through various tools. You think about MBTI, the Myers-Briggs um, assessment. Uh, you think about things like Strengths Finder or the Enneagram and all this stuff. And ask, why is this a modern obsession? And I think the answer is to do with this fact that we live in a day and an age which, in which personal fulfillment is the goal of life. The purpose of life is to discover fulfillment in life and to fully self-actualize and express who you are. And of course, this means that in opening up this subject, I'm kind of walking a careful line here because I don't think that that's what Paul's inviting us to here. What's the difference? Well, the difference is this, that if you are, um, as we so often are these days, interested in, in this self-analysis, very often that terminates on you. I'm interested in self-reflection and looking in the mirror only so far as it then gives me a deeper awareness of me and myself so that I can live a life that leads to my personal fulfillment. So the ultimate aim of self-knowledge then terminates upon you. But in Scripture, the aim of self-knowledge is not that it would terminate upon you, but that it would terminate upon Christ. You think about the knowledge that you encounter when you first realize you're a sinner and that you're in need of grace. That is a form of self-knowledge. But if it terminates there in the awareness of your sin then you'll be left in despair. That awareness drives you to Christ in the gospel in which you receive forgiveness and cleansing from your sin. And the same is true in terms of the self-knowledge of your gift and the way God has created and wired you and structured you. It doesn't terminate on you and your personal fulfillment. That may well be a byproduct, but it terminates rather in the action of service and of worship and of de dedication and devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. I have discovered how he made me for his purposes, not for mine. Can you see the difference? So then we can open this up. What is Paul telling us to do then in terms of understanding or soberly assessing ourselves? And really, I think what he does here is he steers a careful line between two pitfalls or dangers or crevices that we can fall into. On the one hand, he tells us something like this, that you must not have a, an overinflated view of yourself and your gifting. He says, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. And of course, his context here is he's talking about your gifts and abilities. Don't think of yourself too highly. Now, I, I mean, this, this characteristic, which is true of human nature, has become something of a, a cause of entertainment to us, hasn't it? And recent years as we've seen programs that began with I think Pop Idol was the first and there's any number of sort of copycat talent shows that have followed on from that and of course within the context of these television programs you always have these deluded characters don't you who have a different view of themselves than everyone else in the world sees them and I thought for a long time I was watching these programs and thinking are these people for real like is this a setup 
Do they know? Is this part of the entertainment? Until I um, met a friend or an acquaintance, really, on the tube in London who um, he's a slightly odd or eccentric guy, and I asked him, what are you up to today? And he said, oh, I'm off to karaoke. And um, I kind of sort of scratched my head a little bit. I said, karaoke, really? And he said, yeah, this is my passion. And he was off to go sing karaoke. And to my great shock and surprise, a couple of months later, I saw the same man on Pop Idol in the audition process with all the judges laughing at him. And I felt pity, but this is the tragedy of human nature, isn't it? That we can have a view of ourselves that is radically different. Maybe your mum told you you were good at something. And it turns out you're not so good. And unfortunately, this is just human nature. We can, we can very easily exaggerate our view of ourselves. And what that does is it leads to, it leads to frustration as people around you don't recognize the glory that you have yet to reveal and display to the world. Or at least the frustration of others because you find yourself in a position where you really are not competent and um, others can see that, but you cannot. And Paul says, listen, we need to avoid this overinflated view of our gifts. It's a real genuine danger and it leads to all kinds of ugliness in our hearts. And Paul was deeply familiar with this problem. Wherever he went, very often he would encounter men who entered into a relationship of rivalry with him because of his gift and ability and leadership. He talks about this when he's in prison, uh, writing to the Philippian Christians. He said that some preach Christ from envy and rivalry. He says they do it, to, they proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Well, you think, how perverted is that? Paul's in prison, and there are men going about preaching, not because they love Jesus, but because they want to afflict Paul by asserting themselves over him, displaying how gifted and great they are in comparison with the Apostle Paul. You think if preachers can be like that, all of us can, right? Don't have an overinflated view of yourself. He then, I think, steers us away from the opposite problem which is very common, I think, among believers, which is that you can have a self-negating view of yourself. And really this comes through in the last part of verse 3 where he says that, that we ought to think according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Now, it's not immediately obvious what he means there, but I think it's something like this. In the Bible, faith is typically opposed to fear and unbelief. And you can see how fear and unbelief is something like it smothers people's gift and contribution to the work in the kingdom of God. Two of the famous stories of this are Moses and Gideon. When God first encountered Moses at the burning bush, Moses is spoken to from the bush, and God calls him to go back and redeem his people from Egypt. Moses' first response is one of self-negation. I don't think it was a false humility. I think it was a genuine humility. But he said this to God. He said, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, whether in the past or since you've spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. So Moses says, Of all the people on earth, why have you called me to go and preach to Pharaoh? Whether you had a stammer or stutter or some other um, speech impediment, we we don't know. But he said, I am the least qualified for this speech calling. 
And so he wanted to discount himself. God dealt with him and dealt with the situation, but he wanted to discount himself out of fear. Something similar happens with the man Gideon. This is many, many years on. Israel as a nation is surrounded by the Midianites who are enemies. And God, as happens throughout the book of Judges, he raises up individuals to be redeemers and rescuers and heroes. And here he finds this young man, Gideon. And it tells us that Gideon was hiding in a wine press, beating out wheat. So we, we, we discover him cowering in fear in a hidden pit in the ground, doing his farm work so that no one will see him. And an angel speaks to him and says, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And it feels like a kind of humorous moment because the mighty man of valor is cowering in a hole. And Gideon's first response is pretty important here. He says, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. He says, Of all the tribes and clans you could have chosen, you chose mine. And of all the people in my clan, you chose me. I'm the most useless of them all. And then God turns it all around for Gideon in the pages to follow. Now, I, I draw these examples out for you because I think just as we can have an overinflated view of ourselves that, that is rooted in uh, pride and overconfidence, the reverse is as much true and as much of a risk for Christians that you can have a, a, uh, a depressed view of yourself, that you can have a, a view of yourself that is actually fed more by fear. And I think this is why Paul says that we should think according to the measure of faith. Faith is always in Scripture something that you must exercise, something that you must put to work. And really it's an invitation away from this kind of self-negation and towards something more like um, a robust conviction and confidence that if I step out, God's going to use me. And why does this matter so much? Because, listen, to fail to use what God has put into you is, is effectively to rob him of glory. That seems harsh, doesn't it? To put it that way. But consider this. You know that when God gives a gift, he gives it for purpose. Think of the gift of money. God can make individuals wealthy. We see this all through scripture. But when he makes an individual wealthy, it's an entrusting. God has given you more than you need. It's an entrusting. And we understand that. It's a stewardship. It doesn't belong to you. It belongs to Jesus. So the gift of you receiving money at God's hand is not therefore for the purpose of self-indulgence. It's for the purpose of the furthering of Christ's work in the world. You think if we know this is true of money, it belongs to him and it's for him. And to fail to give back to him is, as it says in, in one of the Old Testament prophets, is a form of robbing God. Then this is true in other areas as well. It's true of your gifts and talents and abilities. If God has made you a certain way and given, put something into you, you realize those gifts aren't yours, don't you? You realize that it wasn't by any work that you produced that you are the way you are. It was a gift of grace. It was God. Therefore, it belongs to him. You belong to him. And God demands a return, as it were, on his investment. He wants you to invest your life for his glory and for his kingdom. Now, if I say that there's these two crevices that we can fall to, of an overinflator or a self-negating view of ourselves, what Paul rather wants to commend to us is what he describes as a sober judgment. He says to think with sober judgment. It means a sound mind. Now, I know that the great question is how. How do you come to a sober assessment of yourself? And I don't think there's an easy or quick answer to that. 
I think it can take years of growth and self-reflection and listening. But really, it's going to be a mixture of wisdom and experience and guidance. There's wisdom involved here in the sense that you know who to ask and how to reflect upon yourself. There's experience in the sense that you look at your life and you say, well, God has fitted me for a purpose and therefore he's uniquely prepared me for that purpose. What, how has God used me in the past or how has he prepared me for what he wants me to do in the future? Your experience is not irrelevant. Think about Paul himself, how God had ra- he'd been raised in a, a devout family from being very young, undoubtedly knowing the Old Testament scriptures inside and out. None of that was wasted the moment he gave his life to Jesus. All of it was redirected for the purpose of being a teacher of scripture. But then the third thing is guidance. In other words, I don't want to in any way diminish or discount the present role of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer in his nurturing and speaking and summoning out the gifts that he's put in your heart and in your ability and possession. What is the Holy Spirit doing in you? I'm, very, I'm well aware that we can be mistaken in our ability to hear from God on this. I'm very conscious of that, and I don't want to, I don't want to ignore that as a possibility. But I would much rather every one of us errs on the side of earnestly listening to the voice of the Lord and seeking his will for us and responding to the breath of the Holy Spirit as he guides and directs you. I think people who are like that are far more ready to, to obey and to serve than those who are rigidly opposed to any idea that God would speak to me. You think about how Paul wrote to his protege, Timothy. He said, this charge I entrust you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. In other words, Timothy's calling as a preacher and a pastor was intricately bound up, and his conviction to, be, to do that was intricately bound up with the fact that God had spoken to him. Friend, I believe that God can speak to you. He can reveal to you what it is that he wants you to do, how he wants you to play your part within his kingdom purposes. And if you say, well, God hasn't spoken to me today, I say, listen, seek him even more. And maybe he won't make it as clear as you want him to. But I even believe the posture of seeking him is important. It makes you, it's like a runner at the start of a race. You're in a state of readiness in which you're ready to go, respond to the will and the opportunities that God opens. Now, this is the first thing. I want to more briefly deal with a couple of more thoughts. But the first thing begins with this sober assessment of your gift. How has God made you? Then it moves on to what Paul teaches next is that then you must give due honor to your gifts and to the gifts of others. There's a way in which we need to honor these gifts among us. And what Paul now does is he begins to open up kind of a theology of the body, the church as a body. And he's steering us away from a couple of dysfunctions that can exist within churches. One is the dysfunction of passive Christians. Christians are never meant to be passive. And I describe it as a dysfunction because we can easily slip into this habit. This is the great danger, by the way, of the way church has been operating this past year. This has become the default mode, hasn't it? That we have few, if any, ways to serve the body of Christ. And so we become passive. And it's a great danger for us. The other one, of course, is that we can... 
give way to something like competition and rivalry within the body of Christ. That we can view service or ministry within the church as an opportunity to shine and to reveal how amazing we are. And it sounds crass, doesn't it, when you state it out loud, but the reality is that these inclinations and motivations can lurk in just about any of us. Worst of all, I think in the the way churches are structured these days, we have a toxic mix of both of those things. You know, in an an age increasingly in which church is, is, is more of a performance situation, you have both passivity in large crowds who are mere observers and competition and rivalry among those who exist on the stage whose faces are up in lights, as it were. He says with the lights shining on him. But you know what I'm saying. It's kind of an ethos or a way of practicing church. And what Paul does here is he then leads us. He's going, now you understand the way God's made you. The next thing you have to understand is the absolute extraordinary way that God has structured his church as a body. And this is the first thing he says, that the church is a body. He says, as in one body, we have many members. So we... Verse 5, though many are one body in Christ. Now, I, I want to underline to you, friends, this is not a metaphor. It, has a, it is a metaphor in one sense that he's drawing an analogy. But it's more than just a metaphor because what Paul is saying is it's not just that the church is like a body, but that the church is a body and that it is, in fact, the body of Christ. He states that on numerous occasions throughout the New Testament. You are a body. You are the body of Christ. Which means that in a mystical sense... We are bound to each other and to Jesus, who is the head, who leads and rules us, so that every one of us is now part of this structure, this body, this functioning organism that is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then as he opens up this theology of the body, he tells us a few things about each part. And of course, each part represents a person. And he shows us that every part is different, important, and dependent. He says everyone is different. As in one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. Everyone's different. I think Paul, he understood something of the glory of the body, how it is structured of so many diverse, intricate parts. He doesn't liken the church to an amoeba, or a slug. Now, I'm sure slugs have many parts, and I don't mean to be disparaging towards God's creation, but it's very hard to discern the parts of a slug, isn't it? They seem to just be one thing, a blob. And it wouldn't be a very helpful analogy for us, but what he rather says is you're, we're a body, and a body is made up of many different parts. And in 1 Corinthians, he spells this out in a little bit more detail. He starts naming body parts to try and help us understand our diversity. Every, there's many different parts. He also says every part is important. Each has a function. As in one body of many members, and the members do not all have the same function. Which is to say, every one of them is important. You can't discount because if a part has a function, then it is by definition important. Now, this is true when you think of the human body. What would happen to you if we removed your liver? Well, within a few hours, you'd be dead. Your energy stores of glycogen would be depleted and the toxicity in your blood would become intolerable and you'd be dead in a few hours. What would happen if we removed your brain? We need only look at today's social media influencers to find out the answer to that one. (laughs) 
And so he says every part is different, every part is important, and we're all dependent. This is really crucial. He says, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. And what he's trying to express there is the fact that there is mutual dependence among Christians. I depend on you, you depend on me, despite all of our differences. No one part can exist in isolation or on its own, and no part is an appendage that's useless to the body. There is this total interdependence. Now you think about this in terms of your human body. Think about the relationship between your fingers and your eyes. You don't normally think about hands and eyes as having any particular relationship, do you? But think, my eyes serve my fingers by preventing me from touching hot things or sharp things, by enabling me to take hold of chopsticks and understand how they function in my, in my fingers. But my fingers also serve my eyes. When I'm cycling, almost every time a fly goes in my eye. And my finger is very useful at that point to free up my vision and stop me veering across London roads. You think these two things, you don't think of them as associated with each other, but this is what Paul's trying to articulate here. Did you know that your bones are crucial for your brain's health? Who ever made that association between the brain and the bones? But your bones release osteocalcin. Osteocalcin is important for the formation of memories. The healthier your bones are, the healthier your brain is. Might be one of the reasons why we lose memory as we get older. Our bones are degrading. You think this is, this is how God structured his creation. And the patterns of God's creation reverberate through everything he made. Not just in your physical, biological construction, but also in the organism that is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, the body of Christ. All of these things speak to us in a way that is uh, reflective on one on another. Now, when you understand the theology of the body as it's articulated here and elsewhere in the New Testament, this helps you see yourself differently and others differently. You cannot retreat into passivity in which you dishonor the gift that God has given you. Because even if your gift feels unimportant to you, the teaching here is your role in the body as someone who is different and important is utterly crucial to the health of the structure of the whole. And that a Christian who's passive is like, you know that experience when you, when you fall asleep on one arm and it goes dead. Imagine if that was a permanent situation. You know, you, you hold your arm up and it kind of falls on your head and you can't feel anything, you can't grip anything and you can't feel any pain. And this is a problem. Many Christians functionally operate like that within the body of Christ. And they're being dragged and swung around like a useless sort of appendage to the body. And no, you're, you're meant to function. Every one of you is meant to have a role and find a place to serve the church. You can't be passive. But neither can you veer into this kind of competitive rivalry. Because the theology of the body means that, for one thing, I, I can't assert myself over others, imagining that I'm somehow better or more important. Everyone has a role. But neither, neither can I envy others and, and adulate others and say, well, they're the really great ones because you're honored. You have a role. Christ made you for a unique purpose. Instead, as I'm seeking to teach you, friends, you have to honor what God's given you and what God's given others. And in this way, this mutual honor, it says a little bit later in this chapter, outdo one another in showing honor. This is the only way in which Christians are called to compete with each other. It's to compete by out-honoring each other, which is the opposite of competition, right? 
The only way in which we're to outdo each other is in, in, in exalting one another. I find that an astonishing way of expressing things. Every one of you has a function. Must find it. And this brings me to the last thing I want to say, friends. You know, our question is, how do you use your gift for the glory of Christ and the good of his people? Soberly assess. Then honor the gift and the gift of others. And this brings me to the last point, friends. It it drives us to this, that we're to let our gifts lead us back to worship. Now, here's where I see this. I think what Paul's doing here, what this whole passage is doing in its place within the book of Romans as a whole, is it's teaching us what spirituality really is. What deep spirituality is. What it means to live out a godly spiritual life now that you have been saved. Now this is important because if I was to say to you what is spirituality and what is deep spirituality, I think we have a, an assumption in our day and age that spirituality is associated with a kind of otherworldly detachment. That a spiritual person is someone who is detached from the fray, whose head is in heaven, and who fosters a communion with God that is separated from the affairs of life. Now, of course, there's a seed of truth in there and that we're called to be heavenly-minded. But really, that is also mixed in with a good deal of paganism, if I'm going to be frank. The pagan views that existed at the time of the New Testament were an exaltation of the spiritual and the disparagement of the physical, so that hands-on service was not considered particularly important. You think also of how Buddhism exalts detachment as the, the goal of spirituality. This is not biblical teaching at all. You can search the pages of Scripture in vain to find anyone whose spirituality means detachment. You won't discover that. Spirituality in the Bible is always exercised in activity. And I think this is a problem we need to put our finger on. Think about how this leeches into our way of thinking about what spirituality is. Sometimes in the Christian life, all of us can go through seasons where we feel what we call burnout. We've served hard, we've worked hard, and now we're tired. We're dog-tired. And maybe you've lost heart, you've lost motivation, you've lost vision, you've lost energy, you've lost a lot. And at that point, what's the temptation? The temptation is to say, I'm going to lay down service so that I can work on my spiritual life. Can you see what we're doing there? We're separating out service from spirituality as though the two things are distinguishable one from another. Now, I understand the need for balance and I understand the need to withdraw. Christ withdrew to desolate places to pray. So it's absolutely vital to sustain the Christian life that you have an ongoing deep communion with God. But that ongoing deep communion with God must never be separated from or viewed in isolation from the action of serving God. And what's clear to me in this passage is that really it's all about worship and leads us back to worship. Let me show you how this works. It's all about spirituality. It begins with how the the chapter opens when Paul says, you know, in view of the gospel, essentially, he says, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. You want to be a spiritual person? Well, take this body and offer it to God. In other words, every ounce of energy and passion and service, that's your worship. Worship is not just the singing to God of songs. And it's not just seeking him in the quiet place in prayer and adoration. These things are vital. But 
Worship in the holistic biblical sense is the exertion of energy for the kingdom and for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is how the chapter begins. Then he leads us to understand that it's in the discovery of your gifts that you find the grace of God on your life. And look how he puts it. He says in verse 6, having gifts, and the word there is charismata. It means grace gift. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. Now we know, if you know anything about the New Testament and its teachings on the charismata, the grace gifts, you know that these are a work of the Holy Spirit upon you, the grace of God given to you. Now I highlight this because I say, listen, we tend to think about grace as something to do with getting saved, and it is that. The grace of God is the gift of God to us of the forgiveness and restoration and atonement that we've received through the gospel when we've become Christians and throughout the Christian life. But grace, if grace just means gift, the gift of the Spirit is a grace to us. And the, gift, the gifts that he gives us, the spiritual gifts, the charismata, are his grace at work in and through you. So spiritual life, in other words, is not just communion and intimacy with God. It's the power of God infusing your whole being for serving him. That's spirituality in Scripture. And that brings you to the experience of daily spirituality, which then you understand to be a daily dependence upon the Holy Spirit for obedience. You see, the Christian who's detached from service might think that they are spiritual and communing with God, but the very fact that they're doing nothing means that they don't need God. But the minute you exert yourself, and perhaps even you find yourself at the edge times of what we call burnout, that's what drives you back to your knees in dependence upon the Holy Spirit. That spirituality, it's every day coming to him and saying, God, I need more of you. I can't do this without you. Use me for your glory, but God, give me strength and power and grace to fulfill your will in and through my life. That's a different vision, isn't it? than the person who separates himself out from service. This is what I'm trying to say to you, friends. The biblical spirituality can't be separated from engagement with the work of God, which means that a church such as ours will not just be full of people who believe the right things. I want that. Of course I do. But we're not just going to be marked by orthodoxy and a close attention to Scripture. It has to move into orthopraxy. And a healthy church is going to be a church in which every single person discovers their place within the body of Christ. Now some of that will be, obviously, the ministries of the church and leadership within the church. Some of it will be the unseen ways in which we serve one another in thousands of different ways that are organic and unplanned and unstructured and led by God, ultimately. But the aim is the same. So live out this work that Christ has put into you. And friend, where I think that Christ would want us to be as we recover spiritual life in the days to come, in the life of the church, is to exert ourselves for him. 
I don't want you to feel heavy if you feel I already am and Andrew's laying more on me. That's not my intention at all. Please don't mishear me. I know that some Christians are particularly afflicted with a sensitive conscience and and, uh, you may think I'm berating you. I'm not. But the point is that everyone needs to find their role. Think about, this is how I want to close. I just want to remind you of what Paul said of himself as he reflected on his circumstances after decades of ministry. In Philippians 2, he said, he's languishing in prison when he wrote this, by the way. He said, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Here's a man who's not going to give way to self-pity as he sits in prison. He calls to mind the image of the drink offering in the Old Testament sacrifice where you bring wine to the altar and pour it out on the ground. He says, that's an image of my life. I'm being poured out as I languish in a prison cell. I've served God every moment since Christ saved me on the road to Damascus. And now I'm being poured out as a drink offering. And it looks like a waste to anyone else looking. But to Christ, it's a fragrant offering. He says something similar when he's writing his very last letter. His letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy. I love these words. And he was really contemplating at this point the end of his life. And he says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. It's the same analogy, isn't it? When Paul reflected on years of exertion and suffering and energy and service, he says, the only thing I can think of when I think about the years that I've spent dedicated to Jesus is this. I've been a drink offering. He's been pouring me out on the ground. I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but to also to all who have loved his appearing. You can tell a heavenly-minded Christian, not by their otherworldly detachment, but by their eager pursuit of serving Jesus in this life so that they can gain a heavenly crown when they're with Christ in eternity. My charge and instruction and exhortation to you, brothers and sisters, is step out of the shadows. Do not be an appendage. Find your place within the body. It begins with community. It begins with fellowship. It begins with relating to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. But then it it gives birth to other opportunities as God uses you. God willing, next week I want to just look at that passage again, but begin to focus on some of the gifts that Paul highlights. This very much depends, of course, on whether, uh, whether the baby arrives, so we shall see. But either way, we're going to have an opportunity to look at these at some point. Why don't we bow our heads and pray? Pete, will you come and lead us in response? Jesus, I thank you that in understanding what it means to serve, what it means to spend and be spent, what it means to live for the glory of the Father, we have no greater example than you, Jesus. 
The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Your life was poured out. You used every gift and ability and opportunity that God had given you for the purpose of glorifying the Father in heaven. Father, I pray that as we have considered what it means to use our gifts for your glory, I ask, Spirit of God, that you'll be at work touching the lives of everyone in our church, that they will find their place within the body and also find their function within the body. Understand what it means to serve you inside the church, outside the church, in the context of the family, in the workplace, and in the world. And understand, Lord, what it means to be servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that none of us will be content in passivity and none of us will become toxic with competition and rivalry, but rather, Lord, our hearts will be dedication and devotion and worship unto Jesus and for the glory of his name. Summon this out of us, I pray, as we serve you in Jesus' name. Amen.